0: Welcome to Sports Lit, I'm Neil Acharya. And I'm Nathan Sager. One and done, making the jump, whatever you want to call it, the reason a basketball player can enter the NBA draft after a season of college or could have straight out of high school at one time is in essence because of one man, Spencer Haywood. Haywood was the son of sharecroppers, father John and mother Eunice, who grew up picking cotton in Silver City, Mississippi. Sharecropping was a system of farming prevalent in the South following the abolition of slavery. The process involved working a plot of land, not your own, with a portion of your harvest going to the landowner, and the meager earnings in return allowed for the barest of essentials to live by. When you think of the term backbreaking work, this is it. In order to stay close to home, in a time when straying too far away could mean trouble or death in the Jim Crow South, Haywood and his siblings improvised the game of basketball where the rock might as well have been one. It was made of a croaker sack, cotton, and rags. It didn't bounce. They had to pretend it did. However, this game of make-believe would lead to the real thing, and his journey to the hardwood started as part of the great migration north. At the age of 14 in 1964, Haywood traveled first to Chicago and then to Detroit, where his talent first went on display at Pershing High School with coach Will Robinson, who would become a lifelong friend. Next came junior college ball, which led to starring on the 1968 U.S. Olympic team in Mexico. Division one followed and then a pro career, which started out sensationally in his rookie year with the ABA's Denver Rockets. Everything but the contract he signed, that is. And so a Maverick owner from a rival league you may have heard of, the National Basketball Association, was ready to rock the boat in his own waters to obtain Haywood. And Haywood was more than willing to embark on the voyage. Essentially, Haywood challenged the NBA rule that a player had to wait four years after graduating high school in order to be eligible to play. The challenge went to the Supreme Court, and in March 1971, roughly three months after Spencer signed in Seattle, the ruling that the NBA regulations violated the Sherman Antitrust Act by a district court was upheld by the highest court. Instead of revelry, revelry, though, a lot of his peers felt lost because of it. It can be argued that the ruling helped the league in the long run by bringing in an influx of young talent, such as Phil Chenier, or as we may call him up here, Phil Chenier, (laughs) Um, Bernard King, and later Magic Johnson, James Worthy, and Michael Jordan, who would help save the NBA. Remember, the league was waning in the 70s and early 80s. The decisive Game 6 of the 1980 final was broadcast on tape delay. Today, it probably rivals soccer as the most popular team sport on earth. Sadly, Haywood's story weaves through these problematic, waning, waning problematic years as well, as the glam coke use of the 70s turned into the epidemic of the 80s when it started to be free-based, cooked, and smoked as crack. That's right around when things fell apart for him, and is a major thread in a book about his career, The Spencer Haywood Rule, Battles, Basketball, and, Making, and the Making of an American Iconoclast, which was released on October 6th. The scarlet letter of drug use stayed with him in large part because the NBA held him up as an example because he was so good. When even though he was he was far from the only player that was you know caught up in any of this. And there's there's players that ended up on the wrong side of it, like Marvin Bad News Barnes, who uh, Carl Suban spoke about in season two, episode one, as the player he looked up to as a young man wanting to play professional basketball. Remember the last dance, what Jordan saw in that hotel room during the early days with the Bulls? Well, that is what the NBA wanted to clean up. And Haywood was swept out in the process and for decades it overshadowed his willingness to challenge the power structure and uh, basically being the pivotal man in shaping the high flying NBA we see today. Uh, But with the passage of time, we now see things clearly. And while the class of 2015 uh, Hall of Fame power forward is still not asking anyone to forget that his name is tied to a low point, uh, he also wants people to remember why he should know it in the first place, and for the NBA to put some respect on it officially.
1: Indeed. Yeah, well, here we juxtapose uh, things in sports, uh, you know, rules that are named after a person such as rules that are named after a person. There's a progression. Uh, we'll start with hockey because we're Canadian. The Gordie Howe hat trick, where you know, which is when a player gets a goal, an assist, and a fight in the same game. Gordie Howe actually only had one of those in his 32-season uh, pro hockey career. You know, baseball's got the Tommy John surgery, you know, the surgical procedure that restores throwing arms, but Tommy John didn't actually invent it. He was just the first player to, you know, brave going under the knife. I'm not going to do football because it has too many rules and they have new seem to have new ones every week. Uh, But in the instance of our guest today, in order for the Spencer Haywood rule to, you know, enter -enter the lexicon, uh, he and Mark J. Spears and Gary Washburn actually had to write a book of that title to remind sports fans of his stand in the early 70s that Neil introduced at at a time when I think the economics of the business of games was. Finally, being dragged into the twentieth century, you know the the ripple effect of you know Spencer Haywood and the Seattle Super Honics, Sonics, uh, you know going through the courts to rock the structure of American pro sports has been huge. Uh, now maybe some of the context has been lost, like why you know now we realize you know four four years you got to wait till you're 22 to play in, play in the league, uh, you know that seems are seems archaic but i mean it's, it's that will last in the nfl until i think we were old enough to start following football uh, you know that also seemed archaic was you know the reserve clause or the option clause that the pro sports industry interpreted to mean as we hold your playing rights forever and if you don't sign on the dotted line for whatever your benevolent employer just dines to pay you we'll just auto renew you at 90 percent of what we paid you last year Uh, you know, chip in from Captain Obvious. Uh, You know, people who have the clout to own big league sports teams, they expect to dictate the terms of employment. Uh, That's probably still there today. It's just that there's a lot more zeros on the uh, contracts. But at that time when Spencer Haywood was a young fellow, there was a whole wave of athletes, you know, labor leaders, such as Marvin Miller in baseball, and entrepreneurs who weren't born into the old boy club who said you know this way it's got to be is wrong and that fight is you know endless and it's <laughs> still you know it's still going obviously still going on today and here we have to think of like you know who takes up the fight and where they are in their life uh you know the business person who decides okay i'm gonna go start my own, you know start a rival league and the labor leader who you know has been through, you know, a bazillion, you know, arbitrations and strikes, they're, you know, probably, you know, established in their life. They're 40, 50 years old. You know, uh, the great Oscar Robertson was 32 years old and, you know, 10 years into an inner circle Hall of Fame NBA career when he took the league to antitrust city over the option clause, which led to NBA free agency. Um, More recent example from pro sports, you know, Colin Kaepernick was an established 29-year-old NFL quarterback when he began his racial injustice and police brutality protests in 2016. You know, Haywood's fight to just get into the NBA, you know, came when he was just 21 years old. Uh, that's what really sets him apart of one thinks of themselves at what they were, what you were like at that age. And, it, and as Neil elucidated, it was threatening. Uh, not just to the old guard of owners, you know, controlling the purse strings and, you know, minding the gates, but the book details that there were players who felt threatened, you know, by his stand. And they probably gave into that base impulse of, oh, I had to suffer through it, know, so should you. I sound like my, uh, I don't know who I was trying to sound like there, <laughs> Neil. But, uh, but you know, so you, you can connect those dots from Spencer Haywood then to, you know, the players now. And the dots also go all the way back to the beginning of, with him also connect back all the way back to the game's invention. You can actually get from Spencer Haywood. Dr. James Naismith, the Canadian inventor of basketball in two degrees of Kevin Bacon because Haywood's uh, first pro coach in Denver in 1969 was John McClendon who had actually been a protege of Naismith at the University of Kansas. McClendon was the first black head coach in the modern history of the four major North American pro sports. So there were, you know, before reading this, there was a lot I honestly did not know about you know, Haywood's actual career. I sort of knew 68 Olympics and being the first hardship player and But, you know, the thumbnail sketch of him was basically just the start of his career and kind of like the wind down portion of his NBA career that you talked about, Neil. Uh, Sort of knew how his, you know, he was, you know, the guy who, you know, put the 68 U.S. Olympic basketball team at a time when only college players could represent the U.S., Uh, put them on his back and how that was going on. Well, you know, John Carlos and Tommy Smith had their black glove protest and, how Haywood was the guy who sort of stepped in when when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was you know the best college player in America at the time, you know joined into you know Dr. Harry Edwards' Black Athlete boycott. You know definitely parallels to you know what events in 2020. You, know, you think of you know Maya Moore pausing her WNBA career to you know get, get a wrongfully convicted prisoner release, or Renee Montgomery and all the WNBA players who really drove the social justice strike in sports on August 26th, 2020. So that sort of covers everything with Haywood's early early career and how he, you know, fought the powers that be. Uh, through our season four guest, Jeff Pearlman's first Lakers book, Showtime, I sort of knew how Haywood got so underwater with, you know, cocaine dependency in 1980. Hey, it was Los Angeles and it was, and it was 1980, right? Uh, that the Lakers actually had to move on from in the middle of the NBA finals. So the, but this book filled in, you know, everything about his early life and, and the in-between parts when he was in his, you know, peak years as a player. I mean, I actually thought he was from Detroit because, you know, that's where he went for high school in his single season of uh, Division I college. I didn't know about his mar- marriage to Iman, who, you know, we know is the widow of uh, David Bowie. Now, just to run some numbers at you, his first five NBA seasons with Seattle, he posted per-game averages of 25 points and 12 rebounds. And he had the team's single season scoring record for the entire time it was in Seattle. Kevin Durant did not break it until after the franchise moved to Oklahoma City. And Haywood still holds the Sonics slash Thunder record for rebounds per game in a season. And in our research, we saw a clip where the aforementioned James Worthy says Haywood was the first player he watched who would, you know, palm the basketball in one hand and you know, thrust it in the face of his defender, you know, tease and taunt and throw off and tempt them, and and that was kind of part of a a black style that was coaches tried to get out of the game before you know basketball embraced that you know athletic expressionism you know I've quoted it before but you know the NBA and the WNBA are sports you know premier athletic show so hearing that from Worthy you know passes on that Haywood was one of those 1970s stars who was a model for the Player who came along 10, 20, 30 years later. I think a lot of people maybe think of Julius Irving, and Julius Irving was also you know an early entry. He was he was maybe the one of the first or second, first few players because he only he came out after his uh, sophomore year to go to the ABA. So you know it's often the second person who has, gets it a little bit easier, right? But Haywood's a fascinating story because you know he's playing you know, all that stress from his early career probably there you know, probably was a knock-on effect that you know led led to the you know issues he encountered later but despite all that he's you know a hall of famer on merit his uh, player efficiency ratings right in the neighborhood with guys like clyde fraser grant hill bernard king robert parish it's like our basketball cards collections come to life here neil yeah <laughs> uh, so we're grateful he's able to join us to talk about his uh unique autobiography which was published last fall by triumph books
0: Thank you, Nate. Uh, Also want to let our listeners know, if you want to purchase this book or any of the others we've covered so far or we're going to cover, head to our website, uh, www.sportslit.ca, where you can find basically links to buy these books. So uh, please do if you're interested. And with that said, we are glad to start Season 5 of Sports Lit with Spencer Haywood next. And welcome back to Sports Lit, Nate. Uh, we are ple- we have the great pleasure of being joined by Mr. Spencer Haywood. Mr. Haywood, uh, welcome in. And I'd like to just get right into the questions, if that's okay. And and uh, you know, we me and Nate both read the book as we always do. And um, you know, I wanted to know, you know, first and foremost, we know that we were going to talk a lot about the Spencer Haywood Rule, but I want to. I want to ask you about your skill set. I want, to, I want to, to, to people that may not know of you, what was your skill set on the floor? What made you so dominant as a player?
2: Well, let, let me start a little early in my career because a lot of my stuff happened when I was a teenager or a day after. In 1968, I was the youngest player to ever be picked for the U.S. Olympic team. And in that sixty eight games, which was promoters in his way of justice and civil rights movements and so on, with Tommy Smith and John Carlos making the final salute on on the podium after after their they had finished the track event. Um, but I started in sixty eight there and and I was eighteen when I was chose for the team. I turned nineteen before we got down. To the, to the big game and um, my game set was I was replacing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar who boycotted the 68 Olympics or he chose not to go and, and work with kids in Harlem he said and Wes Unsell who decided to sign his pro contract for young listeners to understand before 92 I think it was you had to be an amateur on the Olympic team, you couldn't be a pro. And so uh, Wes signed his contract with Baltimore and Elvin Hayes signed his contract, I think with uh, uh, San Diego or someone, but nevertheless, they signed their contracts. And so they invited uh, me to try out for the team and and I made the team. And, And during that period, I set the record for the most points in the history of the Olympics at age 19. The age doesn't matter, but just I, I broke Oscar Robertson record. Uh, also I broke uh, somebody else's record. I think it was Bill Russell's record at uh, 72% from the field. I also broke the record and in, in the most rebound, I think it was Bill Russell, but uh, it was three records that went down and also the youngest player in the history of America to win the gold medal and and so I was replacing three uh, Hall of Famers and three legends at a very young age to to go to the Olympics and do this, do such a thing. And in that same Olympics, we had George Foreman, uh, we had uh, Bob Beeman, we had Dina DeVeroni, which is a swimmer, great swimmer. And we also had Dick Fosbury, who set the standards for high jumping. You know, before it was a scissor kick or it was a, a jump over the bar, and he went over with the Fosberry flop. So uh, it was an incredible time, an incredible Olympics. So that's when I took my shine uh, as a player. And even before that, I had taken some shine in Detroit because we didn't have, we were uh, screened out of going to the state champions for years, for 35 years. And when I came up from Mississippi, Will Robinson, who then was my coach as well as my guardian, uh, looked after me completely and said, look, we got a chance to win the Class A state championship, uh, first time it would have been done, would be done, uh, from the city of Detroit in 35 years. We won that, and I averaged 27 points and 26 rebounds a game in high school and uh, we won the Class A state championship. So that was the the setting of the table of what I was like. And then right back after that, I came back to the University of Detroit after my freshman year at, at Trinidad State Junior College. And I set records there at the university. All of the records were rendered by me that year. Uh, I averaged uh, 33 points, I think, 33 points and 23 rebounds per game or somewhere near that. Uh, and that was the leading rebound in the country, and I finished third in the country in scoring. And we had on that All-American team, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Pistol Pete Maravich, uh, Rick Mount, Uh, Calvin Murphy and myself and and shortly after that I I I Mm -hmm. left college because of hardship because of uh, the situation that had taken place where they didn't hire Will Robinson at the University of Detroit so I had no reason to stay and I couldn't transfer to any place so the ABA the startup ABA league was starting up so they had been in in works. They uh, had been in the works for three years. They had great players over there, and they decided they would break the then four-year rule because prior to me, the ABA, NBA, all of them had a rule that states that you must be out of high school four years after your, I mean, you could only be eligible to go into the pros four years after your high school class had graduated. So the ABA broke their rule and said, we're going to try it with Spencer Haywood. And if he can get five points and three rebounds, the gambit would work. We can then undercut the NBA with the draft because they've drafted Kareem first and Kareem decided, no, I don't want to play there. I want to play in the NBA. And so they they lost all of their drafts. So they tried to come up with a gambit to do this. And I was that conduit. And then that season, I averaged uh, 30 points and 20 rebounds at age 19 again, uh, or was it 20? Anyway. Uh, yeah. I- and I was the MVP of the league, I was the rookie of the year, leading scorer, leading rebounded, MVP. Of the all-star game so i wiped everything off so everything people started looking and saying what kind of player is he they couldn't categorize me because i was a runner i could run the floor real well i could shoot from the outside i could play inside i had bulked up from picking cotton in mississippi i was a, a you know i was ready i was a stern kid and just before i uh right after that season in the aba um the NBA knew they was in a fight and the ABA gave me a fraudulent contract and that's when i m- moved directly to Seattle with the Seattle Supersonics and uh, if you want to say something in between, I can move right on through. No, I was,
0: I was, I was gonna say, I just feel like I got dunked on by Mr. Haywood here because, yeah, those are all questions we were gonna lead up to, but, you, <laughs> but, but you just, you basically described the entire book. But no, what I was, what I, and you, you just nailed it. Which was, you, you, you just described the actual type of player that you were, that made you so dominant, and where you could score thirty points and get the twenty rebounds just explain that particular skill set because we're going to ask you about all those other things as we go on so yeah just strictly as a baller you know as you would maybe describe you know watching Kobe or LeBron how would you describe yourself on the floor
2: well I I had the bully and the physical attributes of LeBron James and I had the long stretchy ability of Giannis so it was a cross between those two and and I shot sorta of like Durant. I could play way out and inside out. But I was always I came down low because I like to feel the body of the player and so I played out and so I I i interesting enough we were on a, a nice call yesterday with some of the some of my old players, Doctor J, Julius Irvin, Rick Barry, uh Artist Gilmore, George Gervin. Uh, and the likes. We were just had a, a long conversation yesterday about uh, basketball in the ABA and stuff.
0: So. Well, it, it's interesting you bring. You know, you, you talk about your skill set and you bring up the ABA because in the book, you you talk about uh, you know the ABA was a, a. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, compared to the NBA, the ABA was more showtime, correct? And that that suited you. Is that correct?
2: Yes, it did. It, it suited me because you know the ABA what had happened is because it was uh, an upstart league, we had a red, white, and blue basketball for attraction. We had the slam dunk contest. We had the skill sets. We had and we had a three-point line. The NBA didn't have a three-point line. So to push the ball up the floor and to see guards pairing out to the, to the three-point line for the shot or the forwards out there, uh, it was an incredible style of play. It was fast. It was emotional. And we had to sell our product. So uh, it was theatrics to some degree, you know. And they looked upon it. I remember the Celtics uh, coach. And general manager Red Arbeit, Well they just playing alley ball is what they're doing they are not. They're <laughs> not real basketball players. I can't wait to scrimmage them in the summertime and lo and behold he did and they lost. <laughs> 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 so so they was like, Oh, okay, I guess this is true. We gotta do something about this league. Yeah, yeah, so you're, yeah. uh
1: you remind me of the movie Semi Pro, and they get the guy who yeah. was on the Celtics, and he's not, you know, yeah. How how <laughs> how, how how much does your book sort of uh, give the you know paint the picture of how there was that sort of culture conflict between you know the established NBA and these you know the this athletic sure, sure. Uh, sure. athleticism that was coming into the had, NBA?
2: Yeah, we had all of us. Rick Barry had left the uh, NBA and came over to to do his thing, and his, his owner was Pat Boone. <laughs> the owner of, of his team was Pat Boone. And uh, it, it was just, uh, you know, we could grow our hair. Back then, you know, you couldn't have an afro and you couldn't have uh big handlebar mustache. You couldn't do that, you know, nor could you grow your, your, if you were white, you had a, a mullet or your hair down your back a little but You couldn't do that in the NBA. It was like not a written rule, but you just didn't see it. And so, over in the ABA, we we tried to grow our throws, afros, to the highest of heights. <laughs> Thus, Julius urban and and Daniel Hillman and all those guys who had the throw. Artist Gilmore had the big throw, and and then we had the flares, bell-bottom pants on. Of course, the NBA guys was like that, but they were a little bit more refined because we were. Early out of uh, college. We were like maybe one, two, three years out of, uh, you know, in college. And those guys had spent four years, so they were like, you know, like Republicans and Democrats. (laughs) (laughs) They were conservative. Yeah.
1: And how did uh, Spencer, how did you and Gary Washburn and Mark J. Spears, you know, connect to work on this book about your life?
2: Well, Mark and I had been talking about this book uh, for a while, and and uh, the late commissioner um, David Stern and I had struck up some conversation at uh, a recent Hall of Fame event, and he says, you know, we should have named that rule, the Spencer Haywood rule, a long time ago, but <laughs> the time is now. And I said, well, you know, it's not too late to do it. He said, well, you know, let me uh, speak with Charlie Rosenswag, who does who's doing a lot of the stuff and Adam. And he said, well, why don't we put him over with Triumph Books? They put me over with Triumph Books. I interviewed for the book, and Gary Washburn was like on deck to be the writer. And and Wash, I mean not Washburn, but uh, Mark Spears. So Mark uh, said, "Oh yes, I want to do this book. This story is so unbelievable, and we had talked about it beforehand in, in the summer league, just kicking it. And so that's how the book came together. And and Gary Washburn came on because Mark Spears had a wedding." Uh, he was getting married. So, you know, he had to have some help. So that's why the, the second writer came on board, Gary Washburn from the Celtics. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's that's, that's, not from the Knicks. Come on, from the Lakers. Come on, it's just the way it is. Um, <laughs> Celtics.
0: It <laughs> <laughs> still resonates to this day. Um, you
2: know, No, no.
0: <laughs> if, 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 you know, I we,
2: was talking to Larry Bird, and he always said, why do you always say that? And I said, because of the radio announcer, uh, the TV announcer, Johnny Mose, I think it was. Oh, yeah. He was the broadcaster for the Celtics. Ah, oh, the Celtics, the Celtics. Nah, nah, nah,
1: nah, <laughs> I, I got a Johnny Mose story, but I'll save it for the end. Okay. Nate's going to share a Johnny great. Mose story.
0: Now you know what at I'm talking the end, about. At the end. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, I'm going to continue on. We're going to talk about the Haywood rule as well. Um, but we're, we're progressing here. So in terms of your roots, and you talked about it um, already, um you know, you improvised basketball in your backyard, literally. You were imagining bouncing a ball. Uh, I wanted to know at that time in the South, how popular was basketball compared to baseball and football? And, you know, what kind of... How did you become aware of and basketball? Golf? No, uh, no, basketball. Uh, it, when you first started playing basketball, you were improvising. So, uh, you know, with the Croker sack. So I just wanted to know how popular basketball was in the South compared to baseball and football
2: well it it wasn't popular uh my first love in sport was golf because i was a caddy at the country club near our home Um, and it was a good way for me to get out of the cotton field because i was a sharecropper and indentured slavery and i want your audience to understand that you know yeah in the 60s black people in america could not uh, you couldn't leave the farm. You had to work the farm. You had to pick the cotton. You had to plant the cotton. You had to uh, chop the cotton. You had to, your whole world was around this cotton field. And so you worked from sun up to sundown as a young person because no one had a babysitter at home. So you were born strapped on your mother's back, and you go right back out into the field with everyone else, and you learn to do that as a kid. And so to me, I always thought it was like pretty – hard work but I did want to be the best cotton picker in my family I wanted to be the best cotton picker in the county and I was looking at like let me get that medal as the state best and it was just one of those things because my brothers we were all in competition and my sisters so I wanted to be the best so uh, my mom said when we had downtime you boys, you want to make yourself, you're always trying to play basketball with the cans and other things. I'll make you a basketball, because we, we were dirt poor. We didn't have no money. So she decided, well, let's put together some cotton in this ball, and we'll put in some clothing in here. And here, there's a basketball for you. But just remember, it can't bounce, so you got to imagine there you're doing a bounce. And, and take two bounce, call it out. We've set up the rules. Call out the bounce, one, two, make the pass, cut. And make the basket, and you never miss the basket because the basket was made out of a, a barrel rim, so it was a big old basket <laughs> with a backboard, and you throw it up there, it stuck and fell through. So we improvised, and we played. We didn't we didn't see basketball, but we could hear it sometime on the radio. We could get it in on our radio down there, and it always was the St. Louis Hawks. Uh-huh. Uh so you, you you had that voice of, of the game and then my brother who had went up north to be raised with my aunt he ended up being um a high school great in detroit and then he was off to college at bowling green state university so it was like it was in the family and and so people were looking at us how we were growing and i was just growing so tall and so fast they were like you know this guy can be a basketball player but i was like i want to play golf no, there's no golfers. You can't even play on the golf course you're you, you, you working on. And I was like, yeah, you're right, but we play every morning. Nobody's ever seen us. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, And then my baseball career ended early because I was playing baseball with my brother Andrew, which is, was my nemesis throughout <laughs> my life. He beanballed me. I couldn't get out of the way. (laughs) That ball was sliding in. I tried to to get out, and I was like, oh, pow. I mean, that's enough baseball for me. And football, I was too gangly, so I I, I was out there playing tight end, and, and, I mean, my brothers was killing me. They was like, I'll beat this boy up. So I was like, oh, God, no, I don't want to just die out here on, on the football field. So basketball was like, the last thing, so then I gravitated to it really well. I mean, oh, once yeah. we got a ball that could bounce, because we lived near the garbage dump, so we picked up a basketball, put a patch on it, and I remember that first ball is a V O L T vault, mm-hmm. and you put a and you put a patch on it, and then we got a basket and we made our own baskets, and boy, did we play and we play, and we got in so much trouble because. I field work got neglected, everything. And what was happening in the field is I was, I was picking with both hands. And so I got hand and eye coordination automatically. I was pulling the sack of a hundred pounds at age 10 and 12. So my legs and my body was built like a, you know, yeah, I was doing man work. So you were built like a man. So, um, and then here I come to high school and I was playing junior high school ball on, on, on the high school team. And, and then they decided, well, no, we, you know, he's got to get out of here because they're going to put him in jail in Parchment Prison or whatever and make him stay on the farm forever because he's a big, growing guy. So you, you got to keep that farm hand in check. So they did put me in jail for one night. And once I got out of jail, my mom says, you got to go up north, baby. You can't stay here. And that, and that, so they put me on the bus, and here I am. And, and, yeah, yeah.
0: And, and what a story! And that's part of the the Great Migration. But Nate, yes, please go ahead. Yeah,
1: no, you, I think in the book you meant I've seen you mention this. You rem, you remember seeing the Freedom Riders, you know, coming through Mississippi when you when you were young?
2: Yes. Well, we lived in Silver City. It curves around Highway 49W, which is the Blues Route. Everything you had to do in Mississippi, you had to go down 49W and 49N, 49 North. And uh, and I remember they were saying, oh, kids was running around. Oh, man, they stopped in Yazoo City. The word had got out that they coming past us, you know, and we were like, oh, man, we got to go see the bus because we wouldn't dare think of voting or anything like that. And so we would go up there, and my mom was, she was sitting there with tears in her eyes, and she said, They're gonna kill those babies. Mm. They're gonna kill them, and 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 that scared us because we were like, "What are they doing wrong?" They just a little older than we are, you know. And Mm. lo and behold, it did blow up the bus. Mm.
1: Yeah, and and what's significant? Now I I think you said at the time it didn't seem significant, but what what is it, Matt? How important is it to you now that you and Will Robinson? You know, sat down and had dinner with with Thurgood Marshall when you you were a young player.
2: Yeah, well, it didn't happen until the case. You know, so when I got to Seattle, let me fast forward back to Seattle, Washington. We, we, we are going to ask you about
0: that. Yeah,
2: yeah. When I when I signed with the Seattle SuperSonics, um, and I get ready to play, and I'm like, we're going to break this rule, you know, the four year rule, and, and the NBA, the ABA, and the NC2A all sued me and said, no, you're not. And so they got a 10-game injunction. I sat and just waited for my 10 game games uh, up. And then I got a 10-game injunction against the league with, with the NBA for the rights to play. And I, they put me out on the floor. People threw things on me. You know, you're tearing up college basketball as we know it. What are you doing? Go back to college. and like, I can't go back. I'm a pro. So so I I played under some excruciating conditions. Uh, One night in Chicago, the Chicago Bulls got angry at the club as an owner and decided, Chet Walker, you got a sprained ankle because of Spencer Haywood. We're suing him for $600,000 tomorrow, and they did. Um, There were other times when... I would get to the game, and they would have an injunction waiting for me, and they would say, ladies and gentlemen, we have an illegal player on the floor, number 24, and he must be escorted off the grounds in which the arena is set on. And this was in Cincinnati, so they put me out into the snow. I nearly froze to death out, the, out there. <laughs> and my case in the meantime was working through the district and through the federal court and all the way to the Supreme Court. And so I finally got to the Supreme Court, and, and I had played some games, but not a lot of games. But, you know, and it, had been, um, it just had been such a horrible thing for me to go through because I thought it would be something. I thought the union, the players and the old heads in the union uh, would protect me. But they were told by their owners that if this young guy wins this case, you older players are going to be out of the league. Because you're going to, you have an influx of all these young players, Julius Erving, everybody's coming. So they couldn't support me, so I was out there on my own. But when I got to the Supreme Court, uh, I found ally, an ally with Thurgood Marshall and Justice Berger. So they saw my case and heard my case, and and they ruled nine zero, or some say it was seventy two uh, in my favor, but nevertheless, I won the case and became Haywood versus the NBA, and like Roe versus Wade, like Brown versus the Board of Education, and so on. And um, and and then after the case, I was playing the Baltimore Bullets, and Thurgood wanted to have a little chat with me after the case, see how I was doing, because he ruled, they wrote the ruling under the sherman antitrust act that you cannot stop a young player from making a living because we have like we have in hockey you can come when you want to baseball you can come when you want to tennis you can play when you want to but because of the revenue that is driving the universities there's this blind rule that you set up that you have to be four years past me in order to uh, go into the nba so um we we set up this dinner, and I'm like, you know, I will. Robinson came in town because he knew all knew the justice. They they had known each other before, and that's what he was saying all along. If we can get to the Supreme Court. We'll be all right. And so I was sitting there just having my my dinner. You know, I wanted you know, I wanted to see how many steaks I could push down that <laughs> night. And then I was eating my filet mignons, and and Thurgood was, kept telling me about. You know, son, you're gonna be ostracized for this. You gotta, you must be prepared now. You won the case, but you, you know, the battle might be, might not be over. You, they might not ever give you credit for what you have done. I took it so lightly, and to this day, March first, nineteen seventy-one, to right now, it's been fifty years, and no player i've made in player revenue salaries from 71 until today somewhere near 30 billion dollars in player revenue for players because i'll give you an example for a guy like lebron he missed 4 years of college he gets like say 50 million a year that's 200 million dollars extra that's 200 half uh, that's 4 years extra on your legs, you're, you're playing. What, what drives you, your career? So, um, and they just don't know who I am. So that's why David Stern said, let's try to see if we can. Let's just name the book the Spencer Haywood Rule, and eventually somebody will come along like the Commissioner of today, Adam Silver. Hello, <laughs> and Michelle Roberts, who are the you know the Executive Chairman, Chairman of the Board for the Players Association. Hello, Chris Paul. All of you guys. And you Raptors as well? Uh, you in Toronto? <laughs> yes, yes, and, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, all you Raptors, you are definitely under this ruling. So, why would you call it something that is not? And they call it early entry. They call the rule, um, or oh, what is the other one? The early entry. The hardship. Uh, hardship. There was one the and done. Hardship. The hardship. Yeah. Uh, and one and done. I'm like, what kind of rule is that? <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, it's maybe up to us in the media to just call it that. You know what I mean? If, and, and then it'll, it might just take hold.
2: Um, well, uh, however you get there, please take me there because <laughs> these players don't know who I am. I can go right into that, that locker room in Toronto and say, hey, guys, how y'all doing? They were like, who is this bomb? No.
0: Um, uh, well, listen, I, I, I do want to go backtrack on the Haywood rule and, and just get mm-hmm. some clarification uh, and, and maybe to explain to our listeners. So, you know, you challenged, we talked about it in our intro when you weren't on, but, you know, you challenged the system, you had played the ABA, and then in uh, on December 30th, you I think you signed with the Rockets, or sorry, signed with the Seattle Supersonics. And over mm-hmm. that period of time, you know, you're going through these injunctions, and... Your, the, the draft class rule for you would have been up in June 71, so only like five, six months after you'd signed, did anyone ever try and convince you to just, hey, wait five, six months and you'll be fine? Did anyone ever kind of tell you that or try and discourage you from from doing what you ended up doing? <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, we were, we talked about it. Sam Schulman, the owner of the Seattle Supersonics. Lenny Wilkins, who was the coach of the Sonics. He was a player as well. Yeah. He played and coached. Uh, Rod Thorne, we had a, just a meeting. He was a, a player and a coach as well, assistant coach. Tom Macheri. I was the associate coach, so kind of strange looking at those guys. They were all players at the same time they were coaching. Mm. We had nobody in a suit on the sidelines, so it was just they were the players, right,
0: right. And
2: so, so uh, we talked about it, and Sam Schumann was very adamant. Well, we gotta break this rule. And Jerry Colangelo from the Phoenix Sun, he had went over and grabbed Connie Hawker. We gotta, we have to destroy the ABA. We are in battle here. Mm. And the ABA will pull all of those players, but but since Sam, since Seattle Supersonics, since the Supersonics and Phoenix Suns were the two expansion teams into the NBA, they had progressive attitudes. The rest of them was like, you know, I made my snap tab shirt and I'm buttoned down. We don't don't break no rules here. And so uh, Sam was like pretty adamant about the idea that this year is going to be a going to be a a year of sacrifice for the Sonics, and I'm going to lose millions of dollars on this lawsuit because I have the the greatest legal team in the universe, and who knows what they're going to do. And sure enough, the legal bill was 1.6, I think, or 1.7 million in 70, and 71. And then the league sued him for another uh, what is it, another, uh, I think they sued him for point. Eight, right for tampering and so on, and so now all of this going on. You look at what happened with the league. The league went from fourteen teams on this ruling, all the way to thirty teams because we had a players to pull from. Mm. Before we had to wait four years, so they wasn't making they wasn't making the moves they wanted, and also the value of the teams back then was three hundred million. And now they're like $3 billion. <laughs> Right. So everybody everybody got what they wanted out of everything but me. I mean, I got a chance to play my career, make it to the Hall of Fame and all of that. But I just wanted one thing, and just put my rule in the way it was written. Uh, you know, to work... You to, know? To, to, to wor- and the, then you have examples of that, you know. They have the modified version of my rule. They gave it to Larry Bird. He had the Larry Bird rule. Right. And Oscar Robinson sued as a group as, as, as 14 teams they sued for, so that they could be able to move from team to team and it's the Oscar Robinson rule but here it is the most important rule for basketball there's no name for it it's like one and done it's uh, out of space it's like you know right. it's some universal thing so it's just time it's 50 years 50th anniversary
0: Um. Uh, Have you, uh, I mean, what's the latest? Has there been any talks on that? Have you heard anything uh, about where that stands? No,
2: I've been waiting because I wanted to. I I thought I was going to do the rollout this year at the All-Star game, but to be honest, I missed my date because I I don't have an agent or anybody to remind me of these important dates and to have the press get the press release at the All-Star break. Because they have all of these equal rights and civil rights deals they are going through as players. And I love them for what they're doing. But this one thing they don't know about, so they need to know how they got there and why they're there. And this is the Spencer Haywood rule. And the press is going to play a major part in this. And so if you guys can help me in any way, it would be tremendously. I'll be grateful forever. I'll even buy you a ticket to a Toronto Raptors <laughs> <afternoon>. game. <laughs> um, speaking speaking. I know, I know you get I know you get
0: no, it. Uh, uh, listen, uh, obviously, this is a very important topic, and we're shedding light on a very important, um, you know, seminal thing that happened in sports history that you were behind, and Sam Shulman, as you mentioned. So I want to ask you, toward the end of the book, you bring up the point that uh, black American sports trailblazers like Kurt Flood and Muhammad Ali and yourself, that, that made these challenges towards the courts or in the courts was because in quote we're raised we're southern boys uh, you see things that did not ruffle I just wanted you to expand uh, on that that quote near the end of the book about you Kurt flood and Muhammad Ali and the courts and sports
2: yeah well the three of us were, were there at similar times and when I would run across Muhammad Ali when I was doing my case and he was like you're too young to be here what are you doing you know blah 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 and Kurt Flood was like man you shouldn't do it. You, should, you should back out of this one and because he was catching so much hell from baseball and when he they just threw him out of baseball and he left the country because he could not live in America because he sued the Major League Baseball and they gave his ruling to Andy Musclesmith which is <laughs> kind of weird (laughs) but he stayed away for all of those years and when he came back the players never knew him and he just died of a broken heart uh ali did all of this stuff for america standing up against the war and all of that stuff and until he got real sick that's the only time they appreciated him before that he was a militant he was this outcast and then for me, I faced the same thing. And we are all southern boys and southern gentlemen or southern guys. But you know, we saw all of that and Rick Welts from the Golden State Warriors, he made it very clear and he succinctly did a, a good statement about once we were doing a a show together. He said Spencer was cut out to do this because he was he had seen all of the adversity as a young player as a young person in mississippi so when he saw it in the nba and saw it how it was happening when they were throwing injunctions against me and stuff it didn't it didn't bother me as much as as a northern black person would have because i lived through all of the things in the south when they called me the n-word i was like oh that used to be my name and so it wasn't like you know it wasn't that hard and rick welts who is you know he's the general manager and I think CEO oh, for the Golden State Warriors, they've won six together up there, or five, whatever tournaments, how many championships they won. Right. Rick and I was together when I was in Seattle. He was our ball boy. Right. And because I was 19 or 20, and he was 15, we hung together. I didn't hang out with Lenny, and those guys, they were older. They were drinking beer and stuff. You know, <laughs> hey, oh, I want to hang out with somebody else. And so we would hang out and go over to the University of Washington and walk the campus and do all of those things as young people would do, and he would know me from that experience because he went through it with me, and so yeah, uh, and the same thing with Jackie. You know, Jackie Jackie Robinson was a Southern boy, right. So more w- yeah. a,
0: a willingness to to just to just challenge, I guess. In, in-
2: yes, because you know you're taught right and wrong and down there you don't like analyze things you know it's like black and white right and wrong So it's that kind of that kind of thing so
1: okay yeah and i'm
2: just grateful to be from the south
1: yeah and now i I sort of got the sense from the book that you know your first five years in seattle you love seattle but i kind of wondered spencer how did like all the stress of having of taking on the system like did that that sort of start to catch up with you as you moved on in your career through the knicks and then the lakers
2: yeah, it caught up with me when I got to the Lakers because I, I was I was still ostracized throughout my career because I would be like the MVP of an All Star game in Seattle, and they would take the trophy out of my hand and say, "Let's give it to Bob Lanier." <laughs> so you know, uh, like we had like three, uh, I'll run. I would be the runner up for MVP, and it would be like Nate Archibald, Kareem Abdul Jabbar, and myself. And I had the best year. Nah, it's Archibald's the year. And then the next year it's Kareem's year. You know, so I I had to deal with all of that. And then what had happened is all of the stuff that I went through during that court, doing that court battle, and so much anger, so much hate, and stuff that was thrown at me. And then, as a kid, so much was thrown in me. All of it came to a head here in L.A. Here I am with the Lakers. We're getting ready to, we're getting ready to play in the finals. We start playing in the finals, and then my addiction to cocaine came knocking at the door, and it took me out. And so I, I missed my last three games with for the playoffs in the playoffs against the 76ers, and was suspended. Because I, I, it, everything had just caught up with me. I, I was not an, an addict or beforehand. I wasn't alcoholic. I wasn't a, a blunt smoker, although I did take a toke or two. But it, it was who, who it did? was nothing, and it just all came heading And I didn't know how to address the issue. I didn't, you know, like at that time, we just never thought about a psychologist. You go into a psychiatrist or psychologist, my God, you must be crazy. Right. So so my wife at that time, which was an international model and Iman, yeah, who was later married to David Bowen, she kept telling me, Once I got through this stuff, you know, Spanish, you gotta go see a psychologist. So I All right, shit. I'll go. So I went in and, and started seeking help and lo and behold I found it. I was like, Whoa, if I could have had this Right. <laughs> Right, twelve years ago or thirteen years ago, my God, I would have, I would have, I would have been the king on the mountains <laughs> I, <laughs> on Mount Rushmore, uh, and so I was able to get help and and my young daughter, who would like go to my my psychologist, mean, she ended up being one. Oh wow! Doctor Shakira, she's thirty years old. i, I, uh, I, I
0: I want to ask you about that ring, because I mean, you know, most players will always cite a championship or championships as their career highlight, but given what's transpired with you and the Haywood rule and, you know, just, you know, that dominant, the dominant style you had, but where does that ring fit in, the 1980 ring, given what you just said about kind of what happened and not playing at the end, where do you hold that in terms of...
2: Shoot, this treasure! Okay, so so we all love EW nowadays. Me, Kareem, and Magic. So they get me every year at the All Star game, and they just wear me out. You messed up our five game, five ring <laughs> winning streak with your crazy shit. So right. I was like, okay, yeah, I did. I, I, I screwed up the run because we were planning on like we're gonna take this these this championships for the next six years. We got them. And uh, so I kind of like screwed it up. But uh, that ring is very important. I have on uh, my other ring as well, my Hall of Fame ring. Right. Uh, and the most important thing with me, I know it's kind of weird, but the 1968 gold medal stacks up with all of those. I mean, you don't get it higher than the Hall of Fame, but it stacks up because it was my validation as an American. And and when they put that gold medal on my neck, and three years before, four years before, I was, indenture, I was an indentured slave in Mississippi. right? And I rose all the way to the top to save America in this Olympics, in this trying time of 1968 Olympics. So when, I, when they put that medal on my neck, I just melted. I, I just flashed in my head, you know man isn't isn't america great or north america it is so wonderful
0: yeah and and,
2: so it's, and we don't hear about that enough you know
0: it's interesting you bring up 68 just because uh, that was going to be one of my questions and, and and yeah when you won that and what it meant for you I mean also you wrote in the book about uh, you know you Jesse Owens talked to uh, uh, the athletes and he was kind of tuned out but then there was the same Olympics where Carlos and Smith raised their fists and you were there to see the aftermath firsthand of them kind of just being you know we all see the picture now and and we see the impact but we don't know right after how they were just kind of shunned so th- I mean was Sean. Yeah so yeah, they-
2: so, they threw them out of the Olympics, but also beforehand, you know, it was like there was supposed to be this boycott. So you put together Jackie Robertson, Martin Luther King, all of those people who long before the, they got down to Mexico City. And, you know, Martin was killed uh, before we got there, basically. And so it was they were saying, no, we want them to tend uh, to participate in the Olympics is good for African-American people to see this. And so when we get there, there was this grumbling going on, well, who's going to boycott, who's going to do some salute or anything like that? And so they brought Jesse Owens down, Wilma Rudolph, and, and some of the other greats from the Olympics to, to you know, like just to calm the waters and, and explain to us the importance of the games, the Olympic games. So. Uh, so we were in this big room, George Foreman and I, the sandwich, and we were like pushing food in our head, man. We were like, <laughs> it's all about the food here on the, in the Olympic Village. <laughs> and so, so we sitting in the room, man, and so, uh, so Wilma speaks a little bit, and we like, oh, okay, okay, sixty four, it was okay, big deal, <laughs> and 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 so. The door, they opened the door and Jesse came in. The door kind of creaked a little bit, it seemed like, you know, like, oh, it's Jesse Owens, man. So, the, you know, like, if he's one of young people, we young guys and girls, Jesse Owens, Jesse Owens. So he started speaking, but he was speaking like, sort of like an old Uncle Tom in a way. And, and we were like, not listening and everything and not like paying attention to what was going on and what he was saying. And then he said, hey, you pay attention to me, you SOBs. Now listen to me, what am I talking about? We're talking about, y'all are talking about uh, participating in this 68 Olympics here. I had to run before Hitler. And we, the whole room got so quiet, we were like, holy shit. Right. This is Jesse Owens. And he, he showed the fire that we were like, oh man. That's who we thought he was the first time, you know. Right, right. But he was tearing the company policy when he was talking to us. again. and then after that, it was like, oh man, Jesse Owens, and he he dropped the H man on us. We're gonna run. We're gonna play basketball. We're gonna do everything right for Jesse. So do, do that you, was the journey. <laughs> do you feel like
0: it's you know a generational thing? You just talked about Jesse, just t- kind of telling it like it is, and then you tuned in like when you're ta- trying You talked about trying to convince some of the young guys about what you did. Do you find that there's a, you know, it's a generational thing too. It's just young people maybe just need a little time to grow into learning about the history and maybe appreciating, you know, like Charles Barkley did about what you did.
2: Yeah, well, but but if you don't know it and see that's why it's important that the name is on the ruling. If they don't know it I mean, a lot of you know, people can perpetrate, like, well, I was the first guy who did it. I was the first guy who set the record. And for years, you know, no disrespect to Moses, Malone, Daryl Dawkins, uh, different players, you know, said, because there was nobody to put with the ruling. Right. Yeah, and, yeah, and they don't go in history and read about, well, who, how did I get here? And then when, I, when you explain it to them, and the one guy that got it, was sharp on it was Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant said, "Spence, come out to L.A. This is before he passed. Come out to L.A. and meet with me in my office and um, way out there on the beach." Uh, so I came in town. He said, "We need to do this story. We need to do the movie of your life." <laughs> wow. Now I wanted and to, and yep. no, lo and behold, we didn't get a chance to do it. But he was one of the guys who got it.
1: Right. You know. Yeah, and we and we had an episode about the uh, book about the Kobe Shaq era Lakers, Jeff Perlman's book, and talked about how much uh, Kobe really you know worked to write, you know write his ticket coming out of high school. But I wanted to ask about Will Robinson and uh, you know when Neil and I were young and we were watching you know college basketball, we saw you know John Thompson at Georgetown, and Don Chaney leading leading Temple, the you know the strong mm-hmm. you know black leaders of college teams in big U.S. markets. What was the missed opportunity when Will Robinson didn't get to become head coach at the U of Detroit where you played?
2: Oh, we had George Gerbin lined up. We had Ralph Simpson transferring back from Michigan State with us there. We were going to be the powerhouse. It was Curtis Jones, who nobody knew about, but this was a great player. We were going to protect him. Uh, It was just beautiful. We had such a lineup prepared for that university and we were playing at cobalt hall we were playing at the university of detroit we had a good callahan field house. we had uh, we had everything in place so it was a missed opportunity but you know shortly after that will ended up being the first black coach in nc division one history when he went down to illinois state uh, and his players were such as Doug Collins and all of those guys at Illinois State. But now I was I was watching a documentary recently, and they were saying Freddie Snowden was the first black coach. I'm like, wait a minute here. Right. So that's what happened to both of us. Our history get thrown out mm-hmm. in the wash because it's so important to know history, and if you don't write about it or tell it, and you don't. Sometimes you have to raise a little hill to get things done the right way, and that's what I'm doing now. Um, I'm, what do you call him? John Lewis, the late John Lewis, who yeah. was the Voters' Rights Act and on the great congressman. I'm getting into some good trouble. Right, right. <laughs> good yeah. trouble. Nice. You,
0: know, you know what, Mr. Haywood, <laughs> because I, I, we, 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 we're just running up against time here, I want to ask you a, a final question, um, and mm-hmm. that is, about your time as the chairman of the Retired Players Association, and what what was interesting to me was, you know, you, there's a in, there's a part in the book at the end talking about the N, the the NBPA, so the NBA, you know, what a Players Association. Players uh, and Association, the, yeah, and yeah, and the, yeah exactly the heart heart screenings they did after Moses Malone and Daryl Dawkins died in 2015. I just wanted to know mm-hmm. if there was any uh, given, you know the high rates of prostate cancer amongst black males, if there's ever been an initiative, especially amongst the Retired Players Association, to kind of get screening put in for that?
2: Yeah, well, we're going to have screenings put in for that. But, see, I I got on the board, I ran for an officer under the board that the NBA retired players should have health insurance. And so under my banner, I was able to... Talk to Chris Paul and all of the, the, the current young players, and they put out 15 to 16 million dollars a year for us to have all of the health insurance that they have, so that's a miracle and so now uh, I'm working with uh, uh, Adam Silver, the commissioner, and with Michelle Roberts. We are now getting ready to you just stole my little stuff before it even be announced <laughs> we're getting ready to make an announcement about. Prostate cancer. Prostate cancer has hit me. I'm a uh, prostate cancer survivor. Uh, we're working with the Michael Milken Foundation, the Prostate Cancer Foundation. They just raised a billion dollars. So all three companies are getting ready to do something fantastic for prostate cancer screening mm-hmm. because, you know, in, in, the, in the black male community, we are six out of ten. I'll say the number again. Six out of ten black males are going to have prostate cancer and and uh, uh, because we don't get uh we don't get our PSA checks, we don't we don't eat right. Like like this pandemic has shown what the disparity in health and it's not anybody else's fault, it's not the white man's fault, it's uh our horrible diet we got diabetes. we got different things running through our system that is destructive. And, and white males, for an example, is going to be, I think it's 4 out of 10. And so it's going to hit us, so we have to do something about it. So I'm now still working as a chairman, but I'm not the chairman, on the developing programs for the retired players, which is my joy. Because, you know, my hands uh, are open. I can give... But I also received the blessings from God. So this is where I get all my joy and helping other people and helping the NBA players uh, create wealth for them and so on. So uh, God is keeping me around because there's something special like that ruling. Yes. What's <laughs> the
1: name of that ruling, sir? The
2: Spencer <laughs> Haywood Rule.
1: Yes, sir. Dispense. All right.
0: <laughs> well, you know what, uh, Mr. Haywood, we, we really thank you uh, for coming on with us today. And um, yeah, we we look forward to seeing where this where things progress. And I'm sure both myself and, and Nate will, will try and incorporate the Spencer Haywood rule whenever in our future writings or any dialogue we have. And um, yeah, yes. sorry, go ahead.
2: If you get into the locker room, uh, just just tell them there's an old God here. Gotcha. The reason why you're here. Gotcha. And you should know him. Yeah, Carl uh, Lowry knows. He he he's on it.
1: Uh, yeah. Our, our our guy Kyle Lowry 2019 champs. Yes. There you go. Well, yes. uh you know what? Yeah. Uh, uh thanks thanks for
0: your time uh Mr. Haywood and uh we... Oh, it's
2: my pleasure. And thank you guys for having
0: me. It's just awesome. Awesome. Thanks very much.